The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And as you're turning there, let me just say thank you for the sweet partnership that Southeastern enjoys with this wonderful church. Uh, M.O. Owens, Ned Matthews, Jeff Long, all three dear to me. Uh, M.O. Owens is one of my great heroes, uh, just an unbelievable servant of the Lord. Almost all of your staff, Southeastern graduates. Uh, many of your uh, kids now, Southeastern students. Uh, your love and passion for the Great Commission is one with ours. And so it's almost like I'm at home, just a little further west. And it's just been a great, great weekend for me to have the opportunity to be here with you all today. God's guidelines for growing your children are how to love your children and let them know it. Many of you in this room, uh, even though she's been dead for quite some time, would remember the name Lucille Ball. Uh, Lucy, in her day, was clearly the queen of comedy. Well, she died all the way back in April of 1989, but even today, reruns of the uh, I Love Lucy uh, can still be found on cable network. And uh, shortly before she died, Lucille Ball was interviewed on television by a man named Merv Griffin. And in that interview, Merv Griffin asked Lucy a series of very interesting, and I would even say very important questions. And here's what he said. Lucille, you've lived a long time on this earth, and you are a wise person. What's happened to our country? What's wrong with our children? Why are our families falling apart? What's missing? And to those series of questions, Lucille Ball simply and quickly responded, Papa's missing. Things are falling apart because Papa's gone. If Papa were here, he could fix it. Lucy was right. In 1960, only 18% of children in America lived in a home separated from their biological father. But today, almost 40% of all of the children in America live in a home where their daddy is not present. Yes, in too many homes, Papa is missing. And yet there's another tragedy that stalks the land. And sometimes this tragedy can even afflict Christian homes. Because you see, sometimes in a home, though daddy is there physically, he's not there. He's tuned out and he's checked out and he doesn't really have any idea about what is going on in the lives of his children. I think the heartache and disappointment experienced by far too many children, was put pretty well a number of years ago when a teenage girl sat down and wrote a letter that was published in Seventeen Magazine, and here's what she wrote about her relationship with her daddy. Have you ever heard of a father who won't talk to his daughter? My father doesn't seem to know I'm alive. In my whole life, he has never said he loves me or given me a goodnight kiss unless I asked him to. 
I think the reason he ignores me is because I'm so boring. I look at my friends and I think if I were funny like Jill or a super brain like Sandy or even outrageous and punk like Tasha, he would put down his paper and be fascinated. I play the recorder, and for the past three years, I've been a soloist in the fall concert at school. Mom comes to the concerts, but Dad, he never does. This year, I'm a senior, and so it's his last chance. I'd give anything to look out into the audience and see him there, but who am I kidding? It will never happen. Now, parents, I have a very simple and basic thesis that's going to undergird what I'm going to say this morning, and that thesis is simply this. Almost all parents, and now for some of us, grandparents, almost all parents love their children, but that's not the issue. The issue is, do your children feel loved? Let me say that again. Almost all parents love their children. That is not the issue. By the things you say and the things you do, do your children feel loved? So what I want to do this morning is, first of all, lay a very simple biblical foundation from Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and then in the remainder of my time, drawing from the Bible and some common sense principles, I'm just going to be very practical in trying to help us all understand better how it is that we can love well our children. The Apostle Paul begins in Ephesians 6 by telling us in the first three verses that we love our children by educating them. We love our children by educating them. And he begins by telling us in verse one, it is the proper thing for them to do. Look at it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. That word obey is an imperative. It's a word of command. So God is not asking or suggesting, but God commands children, you obey mom and dad. It's in the present tense. So that means it speaks of a continuous activity, an ongoing pattern of life. Now, parents, I really do believe that from the time our children are small, we should impart to them the expectation of their obedience. Now, are they going to disobey? Of course they will. Uh, they're little sinners like you and I are big sinners, okay? So they're going to sin, they're going to disobey, but we should try to help them understand that we expect their obedience and that disobedience will be the exception, not the norm. So children, obey your parents. Then Paul qualifies it in two ways. He says, number one, it's in the Lord. And number two, this is right. I believe that phrase, in the Lord, in its context, means unto the Lord. In other words, help your children understand that when they obey you, they're obeying Jesus. And when they disobey you, they're disobeying the Lord. God bless my wife, Charlotte, and me with four sons. They're grown now, but as they were growing up, we always tried to help them understand, listen, guys, ultimately, your obedience, your disobedience, it's not against me, it's not against your mother, it's before the Lord, and when you obey us, you are obeying the Lord. So it is in the Lord. Secondly, this is right. This is the way God established, and this is the way God ordained the structure of the family. But now, parents, listen. I don't think it's enough just to tell our kids what to do. I believe good parents help their kids understand why. 
Why should I live in this way and say not in another kind of way? And so Paul, being the the theologian that he is, goes back to the Ten Commandments found both in Exodus chapter 20, again, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and Paul says, look, there is a promise. There is a promise that God makes to children who obey mom and dad, verse 1, and who now honor mom and dad, verse 2 and verse 3. Look at it, verse 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That word honor, by the way, another imperative, word of command. Present tense, continuous action. So children, as a habit of life, obey mom and dad, honor mom and dad, and there is a promise connected, verse 3, that it may go well with you. I'm going to bless you with a better life and that you may live long in the land. I'm going to bless you with a longer life. Now, hear me well. Not as an ironclad, no exceptions promise, but as a general promise of life. The Bible says, children, if you will obey mom and dad, and if you will honor mom and dad, God will bless you. And God will bless you with both a better life and a longer life. Now, some of you may be here today, and when I say that, you want to say, but wait a minute, Danny, hold on, time out. That's great for people who grew up in a good home. But if you knew the hell on earth I grew up in, if you knew the dysfunctional family life that was mine, you would know that these verses are not for people like me. You, you probably yourself grew up in a good home, so great. These verses are for you, but these verses are not for people like me. In fact, you probably just don't really get it. You don't really understand what some of us have suffered and what some of us have gone through. Well, you would be partially correct. I did grow up in a good home with a good dad and a good mom. I have no complaints about the way my mom and dad loved me and and took care of me, none at all. But God in his amazing providence gave me a wife who had exactly the opposite experience of me. You see, my wife Charlotte was born into the home of alcoholic parents. And when she was seven years old, they divorced. Over the next several years, Charlotte and her sister and her brother would bounce from home to home to home to home. Finally, uh, at the age of nine, God in his goodness worked it out for all three of them to be placed in the Georgia Baptist Children's Home in Palmetto, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, near Noonan. And she would live there from the time she was nine until she was 18. During those years, she never saw her mother. In fact, when we began dating, she was 17, I was 18, uh, she thought her mother was dead. She had not heard from her mother since she was nine. In fact, we'd been married for more than 25 years before she told me something, a very painful memory in her life. We were, we were driving one day from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I was at Southern Seminary at the time. So we were driving from Louisville down to Nashville for some reason. And we were talking about you know our childhood. And, and I remember asking her, I said, honey, do you, do you remember the last time you saw your mother before you went to the children's home? And uh, tears began to run down her face, and she said, oh, I, yeah, I remember. We were over at my daddy's house to say goodbye to daddy because we were fixing to go to the children's home. And, and mama was all upset and angry about the whole thing. And I was sitting out on the front porch on a bench, uh, a stool. And uh, mama walked out, looked at me, 
reared back and slapped me in the face, knocked me out into the front yard, bloodied my mouth, bent over me and said, all of this is your fault, you little blank. Turned around, walked back into the house. She would not hear from her mother again until she was 18 years old. Her daddy came to see her a couple of times in the first month that she was there. And then she would not see her daddy again until after we were married. In fact, again, we'd been married for a long time before she told me this. We were driving again in the car one day, just talking. And I remember saying to her, well, honey, did you ever call your daddy and ask him to come see you? And she said, yeah, I did. I, I, Thursdays. Uh, I would often call my dad because once a month they would have uh, parents weekend. And so I'd call my daddy and I would say, Daddy, will you come see me this weekend? It's parents weekend. Would you come see me and Daniel and Susan? And she said, my daddy always said the same thing every time. Yeah, babe, I'll come and see you. So on Saturday morning, my wife would get up and put on her nicest dress. She would go outside the cottage where she stayed and sit on the front porch and she would wait. Two hours, three hours. Sometimes she sat there for five hours waiting for a daddy who never showed up. When we got married, uh, in fact, the year before we got married, she lived with my mom and dad. I was in Dallas going to Bible college and my mom and dad fell in love with her the first time they met her. And so when she graduated high school, she had nowhere to go, literally nowhere to go. And my mama said, you just need to move in with us. And so she lived with my mom and dad. And I was standing by her in May of 1978 as she got on the phone and called her daddy. And she said, Daddy, I'm getting married. And I want you to give me away. It got really quiet on her end and tears began to just run down her face. And I remember very clearly her saying, well, Daddy, I know you're shy. So if you don't want to give me away, that's okay. I just want you to come to my wedding. And even though he only lived about 10 miles away, he didn't come. I remember the first time I met him, we were in Atlanta for Christmas. Charlotte had reestablished a relationship with her mom and her dad came over for, for Christmas dinner. And I, I have to confess to you all, I didn't act as I should. I, I was angry with him for the way he had treated my wife, his daughter. And after dinner that night, we took him back to the Veterans Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, where again, he was going through a detox treatment for his alcoholism. He got out of our van. We had one of those big old passenger vans with our four sons. And he got out of our van and was walking back into the hospital. And as I watched him walk away with very, very insensitive, very insensitive, I looked at my wife and I said, your dad is sorry. And he ain't worth much. And she turned and looked at me and I'll never again forget what she said because tears running down that face, she simply said, well, I, I guess he is. But he's my daddy. And I will always love him. I have been married to her for 40 years. 
I've known her for three more than that. In all the years we've been married, I've never heard her even one time say anything mean or ugly or unkind about her daddy or her mama. She always loved them, prayed for them, sought to honor them. Her daddy, we don't know where he is today. He, he died, and unless something happened on his deathbed, he's in hell. Her mother literally got saved one week before she died on her deathbed in the IC unit at Grady Hospital in downtown Atlanta, and she got saved all because of the love and the prayers of a daughter. And I believe when I get to heaven, there's going to be a lady there named Delie Ramsey, and she'll be there because she had a daughter that obeyed Ephesians chapter six. My wife, I don't mind saying to you all this one, I'll move on, but my, my wife is one of my heroes. I love her, I admire her. In fact, everybody that knows her loves her. She's sweet and servant, oh my gosh, she is a, you look in the dictionary for the word servant, there she is. And even though she was born into hell on earth, and I mean, she was born into hell on earth, I mean, I could spend hours talking about the beating she got from her mother so that she wouldn't leave the house for a month at a time. She was so, and that was back a long time ago before we worried about all this kind of stuff. And her mother said, no, you're not going outside because her eyes were closed and her lips were busted. She grew up to be a godly, godly woman because she honored God's word and God honored his word in her life. So the Bible says we love our children by educating them. But then the Bible also says we love our children by encouraging them. Look at what the Bible says in verse 4. Fathers, it's a reminder, gentlemen, we're called to that leadership assignment in the home. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but in contrast, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Paul begins with a negative idea. Do not provoke them. Do not make them unnecessarily angry. Don't, don't provide an unsettled situation. I think the best way is like dads, you know, be consistent with your kids. And dads, don't, don't scream at your kids. Don't yell at your kids. Don't slap your kids. Uh, don't blow uh, your stack and lose your temper. First of all, it's ungodly, but certainly in no way helpful to your children. No, there is a positive correlation, and that is be active in giving them advice. Bring them up, nourish them up, specifically in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, sometimes parents hear me read that verse and they want to say, time out, time out. Hold on, Danny. Uh, kids don't listen to mom and dad. All the experts tell us that they're far more influenced by peer pressure than they are by parental guidance and instruction. And I don't want to be ugly this morning to the, to the experts, but uh, just bottom line, folks, they're a bunch of idiots. Now, I know we're not supposed to say the word idiot, but my wife's not here, and so I can get away with it, and you're not going to tell her, and my grandkids aren't here. Oh, my gosh, every time I say the word idiot, right after the service, they line up, the little little Nazis, and then they're like, you don't, you don't say idiot, granddad. Don't say, I, say, I know you don't say idiot, and, and, and their parents are back there just grinning, thinking they're so cute and everything. Well, I know you're not supposed to say it, so they are I-D-I-O-T-S. That's what they are. Because the fact of the matter is, your kids do care what you think. They do listen to what you say. And they pay a lot of attention to what you do. 
A survey was taken a number of years ago. It was the largest survey in the history of the world, really, but the largest survey in America of our teenagers. They asked teenagers all sorts of interesting questions and got all sorts of interesting answers, but this one stood out. Newsweek magazine reported on it, and here's what it says, and I quote, in a recent national survey, teenagers named their parents as their number one heroes. Oh my goodness, not a movie star, not a rock star, not an athlete, not a politician, not a nobody. No, who's my hero? That's easy. It's my dad and it's my mom. They asked him another question. If you were stranded on a desert island and you could have only one thing, what one thing would you want? Well, here they go. A television, 10%. Books, 15%. A computer, 21%. Music, 24%. But the number one answer, overwhelming, if I'm stranded on a desert island, I want my dad and I want my mom. They do care what you think. They do listen to what you say, and they pay a lot of attention to what you do. So what do we do? Practically speaking, day in and day out, what do we do that will let our kids know that we love them? I'm just going to throw out very quickly some ideas. They're not profound, but they're true. Very practical, in most cases, very biblical. And just see if these don't make sense as you think in terms of how I can relate well to my children and then for some of us today, my grandchildren. So here we go. Listen quickly. Number one, you love well your children by getting down on their level and entering into their world. By getting down on their level and entering into their world. I like to call this incarnational parenting. You say, why? Well, let me ask you a question. How do we know this morning that God loves us? We know because he got down on our level and he entered into our world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So how do you love well your kids? You step back and you ask, how does my three-year-old, my five-year-old, my 10-year-old, my 18-year-old, how they look at life? Given their age, given their sex, given their interest, given their personality. And look, we all know our kids have different personalities. I have identical twins, but they're very, very different in a number of ways. And so how do they look at life given who they are, how God has wired them? And you do that by entering into their world. Now, I'll be the first to admit that getting into the world of our children is a lot easier said than done. I'll readily acknowledge that. I heard about a little boy, his turtle died, broke his heart, cried all day. Dad came home from work. Mom stays in the backyard. He, he cried all day. The turtle's dead. I can't get anywhere. Please go and give it a shot. So dad goes back. He's crying. Turtle's not moving. Dad begins to rack his brain. And he says, son, look, I am sorry your turtle died, but I'll tell you what, we can have a turtle funeral and celebrate your turtle going to turtle heaven. And I'll tell you what, I can get a shoebox and put him in it and we can dig a hole right here in our backyard and bury your turtle and he'll always be back here in the ground in our backyard. And I'll tell you what, since we're gonna have a little funeral service, you can invite all your friends over. And I'll even preach a little funeral sermon for your turtle and, and his going to heaven. I tell you what, since we're going to celebrate your turtle's funeral, let's have a party. I tell you what, I'll get mom to make a, a cake and I'll make some homemade ice cream. And we'll just have a little party to celebrate your turtle's funeral. And after that, we'll go down to the park and we'll ride the rides and we can even take our bat and ball. And he said, son, what do you think if we do all that to, 
to celebrate your turtle's funeral. Well, the little boy's still crying, but he looks at his daddy and he says, we can have a party. Oh, we can have a party. And I can invite all my friends, everyone you got. And mom, mom will make a cake. I'll make ice cream. We'll do all the things I said. Son, what do you think? The tears stopped. And a little smile came across his face. And he said, well, daddy, that, that'll be okay. And boy, dad felt great. He'd saved the day. Took his son by the hand and they began to walk back to the house. And can you believe it? At exactly that moment, suddenly out of that shell, boom, comes that turtle's head. And he begins to look around and check everything out. And, and the dad saw it. And the dad said, well, look, son, look, you turtle. He's not dead after all. The little boy, he began to scream and cry. Kill him, daddy, kill him. <laughs> I want to have my party. Now, that may not make sense to a 61-year-old, but that makes all the sense in the world to a five-year-old little boy. So I admit it's not always easy, but if we're going to love them well, we are going to enter in to their world. Number two, we love our children by just loving our mate, by just loving our mate. In fact, I love to say great partners almost always make great parents. Why? Because the number one need in the life of a child related to love is security. And nothing brings security in the life of a child like knowing my daddy loves my mama and my mama loves my daddy and they're always going to be here for me. So if you'll just love well your mate, you will give your kids about 95% of all that they need. Number three, we love our kids well by giving them discipline. After all, they come into the world screaming, what's right? What's wrong? Where are the boundaries? Now, I don't claim to be an expert here, but my wife and I did the best we could with our four sons for many years, and we learned some principles from the Bible that have been helpful to us, and so I'll just share them with you, and hopefully they'll, they'll work with you as well. But let me just say a couple of things about this discipline thing. Number one, I believe in giving our kids a big playing field and not a little box in which to operate. A big playing field and not a little box. You say, why? Well, two reasons. Number one, if you say to your children, you must live in the little box all the time. They won't. They can't. You say, why not? Well, because they're kids. Good night. And God did not design kids. I, this much I do know. God did not make little boys to live in a little box. That I do know. Secondly, and this is what's even more important, you won't be consistent in your discipline. And parents, listen to me. Wherever you draw the lines, you must be rigorously, rigorously, rigorously consistent in your discipline. Parents who use the phrase, well, I'm not going to tell you again. I'm not going to tell you again. I'm not going to tell you again. You drive me crazy because <laughs> basically you're a liar and your kids know that you're lying and they know, oh no, I've got at least eight or nine shots before she's really going to pull the hammer. Well, so you're just, you're, you're, you're setting them up for failure and it's not a wise parenting skill. So wherever you draw the lines, be very, very consistent in your discipline. I also believe this. If you have children that are faithful, trustworthy, and dependable, let that playing field get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if on the other hand, they're not faithful, they're not trustworthy, they're not dependable, let it get smaller 
and smaller and smaller. And if necessary, as I told my boys, I will chain your tail to your bed till the day you die in Jesus' name. <laughs> and someday they may find your skeleton up there in your bedroom. You said you did not. Oh, I did many times. You say, why would you say that? Because I love them too much. And I loved them too much to let them grow up and make fools of themselves. And so as they were responsible, the playing field got bigger. In fact, my youngest in particular, Tim, by the time he was a senior in high school, he didn't have a curfew. You say, what? He didn't have a curfew. He didn't need one. We always knew where he was. He always came home when he said he would. In fact, when he was a senior graduating, my wife and I did mission work in Paraguay. Well, two boys were on mission trips, and one boy was doing basketball camps, and we used to have this big old monster Great Dane dog named Samantha, and so we said, Tim, look, we're going to be gone for two weeks, and somebody needs to take care of Samantha. Do you feel like you can stay here by yourself for the two weeks? And he said, sure, Dad. You said, you left an 18-year-old high school senior at your home by himself for two weeks. Yep. Did you call every day? Didn't call one time and got back, the dog was still alive, and the house wasn't burned down. So things worked out just fine. And so again, your child may not be like that. All my others were not necessarily like that, but that one was. And I'm just simply saying, when they earn your trust, give it to them. Let me say this, and I'll move on. I do believe we discipline our children all the days they're under our watch care. But I also think we adjust the way we discipline as they grow older. In fact, Proverbs 29, 15 says this, the rod and the rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself will bring shame to his mother. So you say, okay, Danny, be clear. This is the year 2018. We are a sophisticated Western culture. And you're telling me you still think it's all right to spank children when they're small. I not only think it's all right, I think sometimes it's absolutely necessary. I, I just do. I have a PhD, which all that means is I went to school a long time. Doesn't mean I'm smart, but I did go to school a long time. And uh, I have a minor, my major's in history, my minor's in philosophy. So I could get my boys when they were little and I could provide for them what I was certain was a logically airtight, infallible argument as to how they should behave. And for some reason, they just didn't get it. But when I got back here, you see... I think their brain is in their buns until they become teenagers. The brain starts back here. And I would get back there, and it was amazing how suddenly they became unbelievably intelligent. So I'm just saying, now hear me and hear me well, always under control and in moderation. Yes, I think it is appropriate to spank them when they're little. But let me also remind you of this. In the Bible... In the biblical world, they became adults at the age of 12. So I have a follow-up question. You think dad was taking the rod to his kids when they were 12, 14, 15, 18 years old? I, I seriously doubt it. You say, your four sons, uh, you continued to discipline them. I disciplined them till they left the home. But none of them, including me or their mom, have a memory of them having a spanking after they were 10 or 11. Oh, we continue to use the rebuke and in our culture, the restriction. But I treated them like the young men that they were. But here's the bottom line. You love your kids. You will give them discipline. Number four, you love your kids by the way you look at them. 
Bible says in Proverbs 20, 12, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. And do you realize this morning that outside of your mouth, one of the most effective devices you have for communicating to your children is your eyes because your eyes can say, I'm disappointed in you. And your eyes can say, I love you. And I'm so proud of you. And I'm so glad God gave you to me. So we love them by the way we look at them. Number five, we love them by the way we touch them. Ecclesiastes 3, 5 tells us there's a time to embrace. So let me be very gender specific here. Dads, God's blessed you with precious daughters in a good, healthy way. You hold them, you hug them, you kiss on them. Why? Because God made little girls with a need for male affirmation, and he designed it that they would get it first and foremost from their daddy. Now, I, I didn't have daughters, but praise God, he's given us 12 grandkids, six boys, six girls. Those boys won't let me hug on them much anymore, but those granddaughters all the way up to Maddie, who's 12, down to Shiloh, who's one, will crawl up in my lap and let me hold them and hug them and kiss on them, and I watch their daddies do the same thing with them, and almost all sick to those girls. They love their mother, but they're all daddy girls. And so God blesses you with daughters. You do that in a good, healthy way. Let me encourage you mothers who have sons. I, I discovered a few years ago that a teenage boy, a teenage boy, will let his mother kiss him in the morning when she takes him to school if she will just do it in the floorboard of the car. <laughs> That's right. As long as it happens where nobody can see, he'll let you do it. Why? Because teenage boys want that kind of roughhouse affection from their daddy, but they still love that sweet, tender affection from their mother. We love them by the way we touch them. Number six, we love them by spending time with them. Uh, this is the out one in my list. You say, why? Well, listen to this. Focused on the family took a survey probably now 20 years ago. I saw a secular survey 10 years ago. Nothing has really changed. On average, on average, a five-year-old spends 25 to 35 minutes a week with their daddy, but they spend 20 to 25 hours a week with a television set or what we now refer to as technological babysitters. Think, you know, iPad, iPhone, and the other type of things that we give our kids. So one, one more time, 25 to 35 minutes a week with dad, 20 to 25 hours a week with a TV or another technological babysitter. That may explain this. Reader's Digest took a survey of four and five-year-olds, and they asked them this very simple question. If you had to vote to give away either your daddy or your TV, which would you vote to give away? And 33%, one in three, said, I'd rather give away my daddy than I would my TV. One man, in reflecting upon his uh, childhood, sat down and wrote this to his parents. It wound up in a newspaper. You didn't take care of me. You sent me to daycare. You didn't feed me. You sent me to McDonald's. You didn't study with me. You bought me a computer. You didn't talk to me. You bought me a stereo. You didn't look at me. You bought me a TV. You did not play with me. You bought me toys. Now that I'm grown and you're old, why should I come and see you? I don't even know who you are. And you know love is a beautiful four-letter word, but sometimes we spell it best this way, T-I-M-E. 
E. And we love them well by spending time with them. Number seven, we love them well by listening to them. James 1.19 says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, which means what, parents? Put away the smartphone, put away the iPad, turn off the TV, lock in with your child eye to eye, ear to ear, heart to heart, and by locking in in that kind of a way, you say to your child, I think what you think is important. And I am here not to talk. I am here just to listen. And we love them well by listening to them. Number eight, somewhat related. We love our kids by blessing them rather than cursing them. You say, what are you talking about, Danny? Your words, your words. Have you ever stopped to think what it's like to be a child and to hear some of the things they hear coming out of the mouth of mom and dad? I've been putting together a list over the years. Here's where my list stands as of today. See if you recognize any of these. Put that down. Stop that right now. Shut up. I don't care what you're doing. Come here right now. Listen to me. Give me that. Don't touch that. Go away. Leave me alone. Can't you see I'm busy? Not like that stupid. Boy, that was really dumb. Why, you'd lose your head if it wasn't screwed on. You can't do anything right. Hurry up. We don't have all day. What's the matter with you? Can't you hear anything? I don't know what I'm going to do with you. And folks, we would never talk to a stranger like that. We hardly talk to a dog like that. And yet we talk to our kids like that. And parents, listen to me and hear me and hear me well. Don't you ever, ever underestimate the power of your words to shape the way your kids think about themselves and how your words will impact who they become. Sometimes our words tragically or wonderfully become self-fulfilling prophecies. So we want to make sure with our words we bless our children. We do not curse our children. Number nine, you love your kids by having fun with them by just having fun with them. In fact, if you were to ask me this morning, Danny, what is your parental philosophy? I could boil it down into two very simple statements. Number one, teach your children to love Jesus. And number two, have fun with them. And that's the whole thing. Teach them to love Jesus. And number two, have fun with them. So I hope, for example, that your house is a Grand Central Station I hope that there are always kids running in and running out and running throughout the house. Now, maybe you're here today and you say, but whoa, 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 wait, Danny, we have a nice house. And I have like some really nice things in my house, in my living room or in my den or whatever room. And really those things are so valuable to me. In fact, I've got antiques that are in those rooms that have been passed down for generations. And I mean, I don't want to see anything happen to them. Well, great, I've got some counsel for you. Get a box, stick it in the box, put it up in the attic, and it will be fine. It'll be fine. Then when your kids leave the house, you can get it out, take it out, put it back in your little idle place. Although, if you're blessed, your kids are going to come back with these large cockroach creature things called grandkids. And guess what? They don't think anything is sacred. And so, 
what you do is you take your little precious thing and you put it back in that same box and you put it back up in the attic. And when you die, they'll find it and they'll decide what to do with it, okay? So that's what you do if you've got stuff like that. I mean, I'm just telling you, if you have turned your house into some kind of museum, have you lost your mind? I mean, I'm serious. Have you lost your mind? Listen, I know this much. If your house is a fun house, when your kids get grown, they will come back and see you and bring the grandkids. And all the grandparents in here would say, that's like a really good deal. So you want your house not to be a place where your children are afraid to bring their friends, but rather you want it to be the kind of place where your kids don't hesitate and they say, you know what, my parents... They're actually pretty cool people. Very quickly, number 10, you love your kids by letting them go, develop their own wings as you nudge them out of the nest. Now, this is the, actually the only one I have figured out because here's how it works. You get your kids for about 20 years. You pour your life into them so that when you're not around anymore, and it's just them and the Lord, they'll be okay. That is the whole goal of parenting. Pour your life into them so that when you're not around anymore and it's just them and the Lord, they will be okay. So you've got to let them go. You've got to let them develop their own wings that they might soar for the glory of God. And yes, you've got to learn to nudge them out of the nest. Two more and I'm through. Number 11, you love your kids by admitting when you're wrong and asking for their forgiveness admitting when you're wrong and asking for their forgiveness. You know, in a congregation like this, there's almost always some people in here who have some broken relationships with either their parents or their children. Some of you may have not talked to your parents in years. Some of you may not have talked to your children in years. And you know, there's seven wonderful words that could go a long ways in healing that if you would make a phone call or write a letter or send a text or a, an email, and all you simply say is this, I am sorry, will you forgive me? Or I was wrong, will you forgive me? And you notice the word but is not in there because don't do that, you're just gonna negate your apology. Now again, men sometimes with their machoism and their, their pride will say to me, well, you know, if I admit that I make a mistake, if I admit that I was wrong, my kids will think less of me. No, they think less of you because you don't. They know you're not perfect. They know you mess up. And I know this in my own life. When I messed up and I told my boys, my sons, hey, dad's sorry. Dad was wrong. Please forgive me. They never thought less of me. They always thought more of me. So you love them by admitting when you're wrong. And then finally, you love your children well by introducing them to a perfect parent. Now you might say, Danny, I can't be a perfect parent. I know that, I can't be a perfect parent either. I don't have any of us in mind. We can be good parents, we can be great parents. But God made every single human being on this planet with a need for a relationship with a perfect parent, a perfect parent. Heavenly Father. And you see, I love to tell, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story about my wife. How did my wife, Charlotte, turn out to be this wonderful, godly lady when she was born into a horrible, horrible hell on earth kind of situation? Well, 
Here's what happened. On a Sunday morning, just like this, at the First Baptist Church in Fairburn, Georgia, at the end of the sermon, the pastor gave an invitation and invited people to come and put their faith and trust in Jesus. As a 10-year-old little girl, when that time came, she stepped out from where she was standing, came down the aisle, and I love the way she says it. She says, that morning, I gave my heart to Jesus, and Jesus gave his heart to me, and God became my perfect heavenly father. And if you met my wife and you were to ask her, Charlotte, what was the most wonderful thing about getting saved? Was it knowing that all your sins are forgiven? She would say to you, that's wonderful. But it wasn't the most wonderful for me. So you might say, oh, I know. It's knowing that when you die, you go to heaven. And she would say, that's wonderful too, but it wasn't the most wonderful for me. So you might say, well, then when you got saved, what was the most wonderful thing about it? And she would say with a big old smile, when I got saved, I got a new daddy. And my new daddy loves me. And my new daddy made a promise to me, which I will tell you is a very precious promise to a little orphan. His promise was, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. And that promise that the Lord made and has kept with my wife all these years, he makes to everybody here today. If you don't know him, all you have to do is ask him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the promises of your word that you indeed will never leave or forsake anyone who comes to be your child through faith in the Lord Jesus. And I thank you that no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter what we've experienced, you love us with a perfect fatherly love. You long to have a relationship with every one of us. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.